the Sunday Sermons Podcast. This Christmas season, uh, this particular one is really different. I know that there are so many different people that are having to um, not meet with as many people in their family, to rearrange a lot of their traditions and time-honored ways of celebrating this season. But I, I urge you and I pray for you is our family is trying to do to remember in whatever holiday traditions you still hold on to, whatever you still end up locking into, that you prioritize the things that are most important, the things that are eternal and the things that are just primarily important, like your own family. One of the seasonal celebrations that we have at our house that's most meaningful to us is whenever we decorate the tree, we re-listen to some old CDs that we made when my uh, kids were younger. And uh, we get to hear them singing and telling the Christmas story uh, with some of their extended family. Uh, Back in the day, their voices are totally different, just brings back so much, reminds us how important family is as well as the story of Christmas. This particular Monday was great. We got to spend some time with Noah and his wife Delaney who joined right in and it was awesome. We decorated the tree, listened to those CDs. And this particular time I laughed so hard at my nephew Aiden Bannister's contribution. He was about three when we recorded him and we knew going into it that there was no way that he was gonna just do a song or a story all by himself. So his mother Joy went in with him and she was coaching him the whole time. We just said, hey, you know what? We'll just hit record. We'll just make this happen and we'll edit out whatever need. We ended up using that whole track. It's just comedy gold. It's too funny. You couldn't have written it to be as funny as it is. But in the middle, there was some some things he got a little wrong on some lyrics that just stuck with me all week. And I'm going to share with you why I'm telling you this story at the very end. So I hope you stick around to the end to see why this is important. But hopefully you'll think this is funny like I did at the beginning. And that's this. As she got him to sing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. And I know it's not a Christmas song, but he wasn't going to have any Christmas songs. And so he goes, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. How I wonder what you do. He had this great little raspy voice for a kid. It was awesome. And But that how I wonder what you do, we're just dying laughing in the room next door outside the sound booth. And then she gets him to sing a little bit of Jesus Loves Me. She bribes him, as you have to do little kids sometimes, said she, he could play the piano if he'd sing Jesus Loves Me. So he goes, Jesus loves me, this I know. How I wonder what you do. And we're just dying laughing. Just go, it, that just took us back. It took us back listening to that, drinking hot cocoa, decorating the tree. It was a wonderful moment. And it reminded us of so much more than just the tree, or the decorations, or listening to CDs. It took us back to what's really important, which is family and memories and values and God. I hope you do the same thing with whatever seasonal uh, traditions you choose to celebrate this year. Well, here's the thing about God. We're going to jump right into the thing about love. Uh, God rarely factors feelings into his strategies. He never focuses on them. He focuses on what is true and what is good and what's best for the ones that he loves. And that's pretty much it. And this is true. If anything, it's even more true in the times that we're calling the 40 seasons. Uh, these times of major transitions throughout the scripture often uh, that are associated with the number 40. But by no means all of them, by no means all of the things that we go through today have to do with the number 40, but a surprising amount of them in the Bible do. But you think back to the story of the flood. You think to the 
Israelites wandering around in the wilderness. You think the people seeking God on Mount Sinai. In each one of these situations, for whatever reason they're facing, isolation and whatever else they're facing, you see God's love. Sometimes that includes his punishment. Some of the time he is actually punishing them, but he's always protecting them. He is always providing for them. He is always comforting them. And his presence is felt, if anything, more during those seasons. That through that time they see his purpose. They see his power. They see what he's holding out for them on the other side. And we are believing, we are trusting, we are asking you to join and pray and seek God with us as these 40 days continue, this series 40 continues. We're asking God to help us know what does he want from us on the other side of this 40 season that we're in right now. One of the things we know is that we need to live in love. And when we live in love, we focus on God and others. It's always a mistake, but it's a very common mistake for us to think that love is all about us getting our needs met, us being loved by others, that love is primarily something that we do so that we can be loved. But that's not the way it works in the scriptures. That's not how God set it up. That's not how God models love for us. When we love, we focus primarily on God and others. Paul writes in Romans 5, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He goes on, he said, if we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, that we can expect even greater things, even more wonderful things, more dramatic showings of his love, because now we are living as his children. We are accomplishing what he and Jesus set out to do. God's love is a strange thing. Even some of the most common and heartwarming verses that we have, like John 16 and 17, if you really listen, you hear this this strange combination of, of just ruthlessness with comfort and love. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. It wasn't fun for him. It wasn't fun for his son. And yet he loved us and he loved his son and he knew that this was what was best for all of them and he did it. 1 John 4.10 says, This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus himself said this in John 15, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. It's a little bit scary as well as comforting. Think about that. He's loving us the way God loved him. And God sent him to die for us because he knew that was what was best. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you now. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and so that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. So before we go any further, we've got to lay this solid foundation that love is primarily about obeying Christ's commands. It's a choice we make to obey him and to follow his example. It's not about us feeling like it. It's not about us wanting to do it. It's not about us at all. We focus on God and others because Jesus told us to. 
You can't really talk about a biblical perspective on love and not work 1 Corinthians 13 in there somewhere. It's often called the love chapter. I'd like to read you a few of the verses here. And I know this is common. I know you've heard this many times. But try to listen with fresh ears right now because Paul is laying out such a clear picture. He's saying this is what love is. This is what it is not. This is what love does. This is what love does not do. He says love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. There's no way to get all the way to the bottom of this. No way to explain love, especially the biblical concept of love. It's just too big and too deep. But for us to really try and make this as practically as practical as possible today, I'm hoping that you can join me and focus on these four things that Paul says are always true about love. These are four things that love always does. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And the first one is, when we live in love, we always protect. Now, I've never in all of my 52 years so far, I've never been in a place or an era where people care as much as they do right now about other people's health, where that is such a high priority. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm saying that's a good thing. I think it's a wonderful thing in and of itself that we are trying to care for each other, that we're caring for each other's health as much as we care for our own and sometimes more. I think no matter what we agree or disagree about, about how to do that, at its essence, that desire, that caring for each other physically is a wonderful and very biblical thing to do. And I love that that is a priority for all of us at this moment. But from a biblical, spec, a biblical perspective, God is always more concerned with our heart and our soul and our mind than he is for our strength. And I think that's something that we dare not forget in a moment when we're getting the caring about each other's strength part a little bit more right. Because this is always a higher priority to him. And just like he tells us to guard our own hearts, to guard our own minds, to guard our own souls, to focus on eternity more than this life. We've got to do that for each other, to love one another as Christ has loved us, even to love one another as we love ourselves. Has to include that we try our best to protect each other's minds, each other's hearts, each other's souls. Maybe that just means encouraging people when they're down. Maybe that means reminding them of something that is true. Sometimes that includes rebuking them for something. There's a lot of different ways that this can happen. Sometimes it's as simple as encouraging people to back away from just being saturated in media so much or getting out of social media for a while. It's ironic you're seeing this message only on media, social media, on the internet. And I realize there's a lot of beauty in that as well. But still, sometimes it's, it's just to protect ourselves, we have to draw some lines and back off. But whatever it means, we're focused on them and their good, what is good, what is true, just like God does 
when he shows us love. One more time, let's look at these things that Paul tells us love is and love isn't. And how clear it is that all of the is and the do's of this list are all about focusing on God and others. And all the things he says love does not do. Love is not like this. They're all about selfishness. He says love is patient and kind. Love does not celebrate truth. And it always protects, always trusts. I'm sorry, I said that wrong. Let me try that one more time. Love is patient and kind. Love does celebrate truth and is always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. But love is not proud. It is not selfish. It is not easily angered. Love does not dishonor others. It does not envy. It does not boast. It does not remember wrongs. It does not rejoice in evil. And every single relationship that God creates, every single relationship that God designs and ordains and tells us to live in, every single one is a situation that he has set us up into where we can learn to love. Every single one is a model of what love looks like. Every single one in its ideal form paints a picture of God and his people and how he loves us and how he expects us to love others. This applies to everything. Marriage, family, fellowship among Christians, the deeper fellowship that Christian friends can have as brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, When Christians get together and they reach out together to express God's love, to share the truth in love and to meet tangible needs to those outside of their fellowship and invite them into the fellowship. All of these things, every single expression of the body of Christ that there is in one way or another, it's painting a picture of God's love and it is giving us an environment where it is safe to try to love. It's safe to succeed and also make some mistakes along the way. It's, it's a safe place where we know there's some people who have committed to loving us unconditionally, to putting us first, to doing what God wants us to do, whether we feel like it or not, just like we're making that choice in their direction. There's also responsibility In these relationships that God has created, there is an accountability that we have got to get better at it as we go. That we change, that we grow, that we take full advantage of not only the responsibility and the accountability, but the the safety, the ability to fail and, and get up again and keep going so that we can learn. Before we move on, and we're about to, we're, we're going to move on from protection, but here's one more thing. If love always protects, we've got to look at what Jesus prayed for us in that area. He said, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. I think it's very significant that Jesus did not ask God to just help all of his disciples die quickly so they'd be spared all the suffering they were about to endure. I think it's very important to notice that he didn't ask God to keep them from suffering. Instead, he is protecting their hearts and their souls and their minds. He is asking God to give them strength that they would not have on their own so that the devil cannot take them away. Because brothers and sisters, I think we all know that God works in all things for the good of those who love him. Paul tells us that point blank in Romans chapter 8. But it's also true that the devil works in all things for the bad of those who love God. 
and to protect others. It's to guard their hearts and their souls and their minds and their strengths, no matter the circumstances, no matter what else is happening around us. Second big thing, when we live in love, we always trust and hope. Kind of lumping those together because we spent a lot of time on hope recently and I hope you go back. They're not the same thing, but they're very related, especially in the practical way that we live them out. To live in trust is to keep on going, to actually bet everything that God is going to come through, to actually take a risk to trust another person, even when you're not sure they're going to come through. To live in hope is similar. It's, it's I really believe this is what's going to take me there. I really believe God is the one who's going to do that. I really believe that if I love this person the way Christ loved me, that that's the best possible chance I have of a positive outcome in this situation. It's a very similar choice to make, to live in trust and to live in hope. And love always does both. Love always trusts and always hopes. I've had a lot of people ask me about this particular verse, though, over the years. A lot of people have asked, so if love always trusts, does that mean I have to trust people who are not trustworthy? People who have broken their trust with me over and over. People I know for a fact are not able, they're not willing to act in a trustworthy way. I'm going to tell you straight up, I don't believe that's what that means. I believe it means that we put so much trust, so much hope in God that we're willing to keep trying at all to trust any human beings because I'm going to fail no matter how hard I try you're going to fail no matter how hard you try all of us are going to fail at some point but God is not and if we can keep trusting him and putting our hope in him that gives us the courage to keep trusting and putting our hope in others I love the way the sons of Korah speak about this. I'd encourage you to read the entire psalm. Psalm 46 is beautiful and powerful. Um, by the way, I'm reading today all out of the NIV just to keep things simple and clear. But I want to acknowledge that that's the translation I'm using at this moment. I hope you go back and reread these in any translation you prefer. But they wrote, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. They write that God says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us, they say. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This idea of be still, this phrase be still is, is scattered throughout the, word, the Bible. Not as often, but kind of like the way 40 is, the number 40. You see this idea. One of the more famous ones is where Jesus calms the storm and he tells the wind and the waves to be still. I think it's important to, to remember that he's not telling them to absolutely freeze. He's not telling them to stop moving altogether. He's telling the storm itself to stop. For the wind to go back to being a calming, beautiful thing. For the water to go back to be something that you can enjoy and swim in and travel on. Not be afraid of it killing you. He's asking the ridiculous craziness to calm down. 
And I believe that's at the heart of this idea of be still and know that God is God. It doesn't mean that we just absolutely freeze and don't engage with life. It means that we stop the whining. We stop the freaking out. We stop the punching things and yelling and screaming and taking things out on others. And instead, we remember that God is God. And he's going to accomplish his will one way or another. He's going to be exalted in all the earth. And he's asking us, even when it seems like he's distant, he's asking us to partner with him in that, no matter the circumstances. I recently heard a really great message from Kyle Eidelman, and he pointed out this idea about be still and how clearly it comes through in Exodus chapter 14 uh, when, Paul, uh, when Moses is taking the people to the edge of the Red Sea. And I, I want you to imagine, just for a moment, what it felt like for them. It's easy, even as a child, to look at those stories and go, man, those Israelites were such scaredy cats. What was wrong with them? But imagine this. You're, you're walking with everyone you love and everything you have. You're walking up to an ocean. You're walking up to the sea. And you know... That unless God comes through, there is no way that this thing is going to work. You can't walk through the sea. You just can't. That is not happening. You're going to drown unless God comes through. And behind you, just imagine, behind you is the most fearsome army in the world. The most powerful military force in existence at that moment in time. And they are the ones who have been your slave owners for a long time. And here they come, and they're mad, and they're behind you. And the only way to escape them is to go through that sea. Of course they're scared. Of course they're upset. Of course they're freaking out. But they take it so far. They say, I wish we just stayed in Egypt. I wish we could just stay slaves our whole life. At least we wouldn't die today. This is where Moses answers them. And it's actually Moses. And this is what I got from Kyle that I want to share with you. I hadn't noticed this before. It's actually Moses who tells them to be still at this moment. And God clarifies what I just told you be still means when he replies to Moses. Listen, this is so clear in this. I'd never seen this before. I love it. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance of the Lord. You will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. I think in his heart, he's probably thinking, just be quiet, just be still. But I think he's also saying, just stop, just stop right there and watch God do something. Watch me do something. And God instantly clarifies this. Verse 15. Then the Lord says to Moses, why are you crying out to me? I love that phrase. Because he's basically saying, why are you still praying about this? You already know what my will is. You already know exactly what I've told you to do in this situation. You already know what they're supposed to do, what you're supposed to Just why are you still praying? Why are you crying out to me, says Moses? Uh, God says to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. Well, let's be honest. The, the stick raising up in the air doesn't actually have anything to do with this miracle. It doesn't, it doesn't make the water part. Neither did them walking toward the sea. What made those actions powerful is that they were trusting in God. 
They were being still in the sense that they were not complaining, not asking questions, not screaming, not yelling, not coming up with alternate plans. They were simply acting in obedience and watching expectantly, trusting and hoping that God would come through. Imagine how embarrassing it would have been if Moses would have raised that staff and nothing happened. But something did happen. Imagine how crazy that would have been if they would have walked toward the water and they didn't part. But it did part. And that's what it looks like when we trust and hope. The final thing that Paul tells us that love always does is that it always perseveres. Just keeps on going. It doesn't stop. It doesn't relent. You know what that takes? That takes discipline. You've probably heard this a million times, but I'm going to say it again. Discipline does include punishment sometimes. Discipline does include God, parents, the law, several other people in our lives, sometimes having to make bad consequences happen so that we learn our lesson, so that others are protected. Because again, love always protects. Sometimes to protect us from ourselves, God has to punish us. But that's only one side of discipline. That's only one side of it. The other side, the more important side, the part where most of the action happens in our hearts and in our souls and in our minds and even in our strength is where we actually discipline ourselves to make certain things happen and make them happen over and over and make them happen regardless of what else is going on around us, regardless of what's going on in our own hearts, in our own minds at the time. This is discipline. This is this kind of perseverance. This is what we need when we live in love. You can see God loving his people this way so clearly in these times that we're calling the 40 seasons. Notice, uh, in, I'm just going to read three verses from Deuteronomy to show you this. And, and the 40 years that the Israelites wandered in the wilderness, make no mistake, that was God punishing them. And he told them, I don't care how many times you pray, you're going to spend 40 years in the wilderness. The people who, who doubted at the edge of Canaan, they used up all their chances. That's it. They're going to die in the wilderness. It's their children who are going to get another chance. And he is definitely punishing them. But listen what else is going on in these times of discipline. There's not just the punishment, but there's also the new habits that are being started an amazing provision, amazing love, amazing grace still coming from God. Deuteronomy 8.2. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years. To humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart. Whether or not you would keep his commands. Deuteronomy 2.7. The Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He has watched over your journey through this vast wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. And you have not lacked anything. Deuteronomy 29.5. Yet the Lord says, during the 40 years that I led you through the wilderness, your clothes did not wear out, nor did the sandals on your feet. There's a cool miracle. Wouldn't it be great if that could just randomly happen? But God only does this kind of stuff when he needs to. He only does it when it has to happen, when it's going to bring glory to him. But you know what always happens? This idea that when we're going through a time that reminds us of these 40 kind of seasons, we're going to see God's discipline. We're going to see both. 
Sometimes he's punishing us, sometimes he's not. Sometimes it's something the Holy Spirit invites you into or that you voluntarily go into. But you're going to always see the good side of discipline every time. You're going to see that he is remaking you. He is transforming you. He is changing how you think and how you look at life. He's changing your perspective. He's reminding you of the eternal perspective that's the only perspective that actually makes sense for us to live by. He's reminding you of his love. If you know how math works, you know that if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. It's kind of weird, but here's how that works. These hard seasons we go through, these transitional seasons, even the ones where we're being punished, they're ultimately showing us God's love. As we wrap up today, I'm going to tell you why I shared that story about Aiden. But first, I want to just clarify a couple last things of what it looks like and why that came back to my head. I, I want you to know this. And I, want, I hope this helps us stick and helps you actually live this message out this week and beyond. Daniel 12, 3 says, those who are wise, that is, those who obey God, those who actually live their lives according to how God tells them to live it. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens. And those who lead many to righteousness, like the stars forever and ever. One of my favorite passages ever is Philippians 2. talks about how our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who sacrificed everything for us, but then was exalted by God. Right after that, the very next verse, verse 12 and beyond says this. Therefore, dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. He's writing this from prison, if you remember. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. So that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. This week I've been marinating in these truths and how to communicate them. And just in the back of my head, seemingly disconnected, I keep hearing Aiden's cute little voice going, Twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you do. Jesus loves me, this I know, how I wonder what you do. And it just hit me, you know what? We don't love stars because of what they are. We don't love stars because they exist. We love them because they shine. And God is asking us to shine. We are the light of the world. He doesn't want us to just not give in to the darkness. He wants us to light it up. He wants us to shine. Shine, star. How I wonder what you do based on all this we've looked at today. And yes, Jesus loves us. Yes, he loves us. The Bible tells us so and we know it's true. But how I wonder what you do. How I wonder what you're going to do this week, today. How, what you're going to do to share that love with others. Because that's what he has in mind. That's the kind of love he showed us. That's the kind of love he commanded us. To show others. 
I ask that you simply pray this prayer. Lord, I will do what you're telling me to do. I will love this person. I will love in this way. I will show love in this one way that's so awkward for me, but I know this is what you're calling me to do. Whatever God is telling you right now to express love, I hope that you will do that. That you will shine that light of truth and love. That you will obey the command of Christ. That you will choose to follow his example. That you will do something to show his love today. If there's anything we can do to encourage you and help you in that decision, please let us know and we will do everything we can do to help you. God bless you. The number 40 appears over 100 times in Scripture, and it almost always relates to a time of trial and testing. The flood took 40 days and nights. The Israelites wandered for 40 years. Even Jesus took 40 days to establish himself after he was baptized. In the Bible, 40 represents struggle, self-examination, and transition. But it always ends in some kind of new life, growth, or beginning. In light of everything going on in the world, it has become clear to us that we are in such a season right now. So as this year comes to a close, let's take this time of struggle seriously. Examine yourself. Allow God to shape your heart. These 40 days will be over before you know it and we can't wait to see what God does next.